But I want to share with you this morning about digging the well of the gospel in your life. Digging the well of the gospel. And I've asked the guys to put up some slides. I'm going to read some things to you out of this book that I've been reading. It's not to replace the Bible. I just want to say that. <laughs> this is a, I'm not trying to replace the Bible. I'm just uh, doing some extra reading, all right? Okay. I think it's very important to say that because sometimes say, people say, well, you're preaching books. No, I always preach the Bible, all right? just want to read some interesting things to you out of this. A guy called Christian Swartz is a German church growth researcher, and he says this. He says that we're in the era of a third reformation. The first reformation took place in the 16th century when Martin Luther fought for the rediscovery of salvation by faith, the centrality of grace and of the scripture. This was recognized as a reformation of theology. The second reformation, according to Schwartz, occurred in the 18th century when personal intimacy with God was rediscovered. He calls this a reformation of spirituality. And now, what is upon us in this third reformation is a reformation of structure, of how we actually do church. The first reformation brought us a reformation in theology, yet failed to affect the major practices of the church. This new reformation, however, will be a complete overhaul and upheaval of how we have done church for the past 1,700 years. This reformation promises to more to be like a revolution in its passion to alter how the church functions, both in its life and its mission. I love that. A revolution in its passion of how the church functions in its life and its mission. Two more paragraphs. Okay? And then I'm going to get to the scripture. The world around us is full of change. Keeping pace with man's inventiveness is amazingly difficult. No sooner does a breakthrough happen in engineering and it hits the market than it's made smaller, more compact, more powerful, and it seems whatever you buy is out of date before you learn how to use it properly. International boundaries are changing, different nations are forming and reforming, economies everywhere are going through profound change with the realization that no economy will ever be safe again. Some changes affect not only the way we live, but also our perception of who we are as human beings. Despite the immense change taking place in our world, very few of us have learned how to deal with change in a healthy way. Without being aware of reasons why, we seem to put up instinctive and devious barriers to, to anything remotely looking like change. There's something in most people that profoundly dislikes transition, which causes them to do amazing things in order not to have to go through any change at all. Transition is an adventure into the unknown, with all the attendant risks that the uncharted can formulate around us. Every change involves letting go of one thing to reach out for what's next. It's death by installments. It's death by installments. Change. The slow death of our mindsets, our attitudes, our perceptions and paradigms, with apparently nothing ob- obvious to take their place. That is, we see only the replacement concept as we journey forward. We don't just see it, we experience it. Sometimes our experience is first, and we go through something that we understand only in retrospect. 
It's important, therefore, if we are to journey with the Lord into new lands, that we build in time to reflect and review where we are and where we have come from. Our roadmap to faith must be kept up to date and relevant for anyone else coming after us. Last little paragraph. Uh, where was it? Transition usually throws us together in circumstances that are far less than ideal. <laughs> Transition involves crisis. Yet crisis leads us in a process through which our roadmap will deliver us to a new journey of promise if we, are, if we faithfully complete the particular leg of the journey. It's hazardous, it's arduous, but it's exhilarating and inspirational all at the same time. This guy's been reading my mail, man. The difficulty lies in the fact that we don't see, if we don't see transition coming mainly because we do not live from within. However, if we live from the inner spirit of man, the inner man of the spirit, we detect nuances. Like a sailor detecting subtle shifts in the wind, or a farmer the smell of early, early rain. These signs of change cause us to reflect and move closer to the person of God through prayer and worship. We begin to ask for grace and wisdom because we feel something is changing. Our early warning system is working. Most churches have an early warning system. They are called the prophets. Or they could be people with a prophetic or intercessory gifting. And I feel like God has been speaking to us clearly through the prophetic word in the last couple of years about change, about a whole new era for us as a church. And if you've been listening, I feel like something of God is being heard. Are you with me? I feel like God has been speaking and saying, my, my people, I want you to change. I want you to press in in a whole new way into me. And so I want to speak to you this morning about the well of the gospel. I think there are wells that God wants to dig in our lives, and one of them is the well of the gospel. The other, we won't speak about it today, but the reason why we're talking about preaching through the Beatitudes is because there's a well in the Beatitudes in the person of Jesus. And I want to encourage you to dig that well in your own life, your personal revelation of Jesus, who He is to you, not who He is to me, who He is to you. Because if you want to get through a process of change, you better be rooted in your pers personal Christology, what Jesus means to you. Because that's not going to get you through this process of change. My revelation of Jesus will get me through this time. As will your revelation of Jesus get you through this time. Personal Christology, rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you in this season to dig that well in your life. In the midst of this economic turmoil, root yourself in Christ. Amen. That's what's going to get us through. The second well I believe God is wanting us to dig is the well of the gospel. The well of the gospel. We're going to look at that today. A friend of mine, Rigby Wallace, is a dear friend. He tells a story, and I don't know where he heard it, but he, I first heard it from him, of this American that goes to Australia. And the American is a cattle rancher. And so he's very impressed by the outback with all these cattle roaming around. And he says to the Australian farmer, he says, where are the fences? 
Where are the fences? How can you, how can you ranch cattle and there's no fences? So the Australian farmer says to him, out here in the outback, we don't put up fences, we dig wells. We don't put up fences, we dig wells. And sometimes in the church we can put up fences, and even if they're unspoken things, even if they are glass partitions, there are expectations that can be formed in the hearts of people, and if it's not a personal well for you, it can be something that constricts you. But it needs to be a personal well for you, because then it brings life. So I, I believe it's important to pray. I really do. So I can say, come to the prayer meeting. It becomes a fence, you see. Unless it's a well for you, unless it's truly revelation for you, it just becomes a fence. So I'm taking some fences away in the life of the church because I want to see some wells in people's lives. I believe the most important thing you could ever do is come and worship together on a Sunday morning. I can say, guys, it's important that we come. Please come and worship together. If it's not a revelation for you, it's a fence. There are many other things you can do on a Sunday. You can watch the Formula One. You can go play sport. You can do whatever you want. Whatever you want. Unless it's revelation to you, it's, never, it's not going to be a well in your life. It's just going to be a fence. And then I'll always be the one who's the bad guy. Oh, Anthony wants us to come to two meetings on a Sunday. What a unrealistic expectation. Two meetings on a Sunday? Don't you know I've got a family? Of course you've got a family. But you know what? I think Jesus is worthy of all the praise that we can give Him. Are you with me, guys? We've got to dig wells in our lives. It's got to be revelation for you. That's what I'm trying to say. It's got to be revelation for me, but revelation for you. Amen? Okay. So with that as an introduction, let's talk about the gospel. Because the gospel is the center of everything. Amen? The gospel. We called you and I, as believers, as sons and daughters, we are, co- we are called to collaborate around the gospel together. I feel like God's been speaking this to me in my life in the last while about putting the gospel back at the center of everything that we do as a church and as believers. Okay? We're called as sons and daughters to collaborate around the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus. We are called in the gospel, Ephesians 4, for the sake of the gospel. We are called in the gospel for the sake of the gospel. God is jealous over the message of His Son, Jesus. He's jealous over the message of His Son. And I want to suggest to you this morning, my friends, that the song of Jesus, the song of the gospel, needs to be this, become the song that we are singing in our hearts. The song of the good news of Jesus. There are many other songs you can sing. You can sing the song of your marriage. You can. You can sing the song of your marriage. You can sing the song of the local church. You can sing the song of your call to business. You can sing many songs in your life, and they are all good, but I want to say to you this morning that the song that needs to beat in your own my heart more than any other is the song of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That's the song that we want to sing. It's eternal gospel. 
Before the world was created, the song of the gospel was being sung, and after Jesus comes and wraps up all of history, it says in Psalms, like a blanket, he's going to roll it all up. We will still sing the song of the gospel because it's eternal. I am excited, eh? (laughs) It needs to beat in our hearts. It needs to just be pumping there all the time. The good news, the gospel of Jesus. The kingdom breaking in. You know, I felt God say this to me in the last couple of weeks. Why? And I've said, maybe, maybe I've said this here, I don't know. But there are four Gospels, right? There's one book of Acts. Why do you think that is? I, I think the Holy Spirit did that on purpose. He didn't write four books of Acts and one Gospel, but he wrote four Gospels and one book of Acts. And yet we are so concerned with what happens in the book of Acts, we, don't, we miss what produces book, the book of Acts. What produces the book of Acts is a revelation of Jesus. Why did Paul give his life in an incredible way like he did? Why did he do that? He had an immensely, wonderfully huge revelation of Jesus on the inside of him that was always growing, always growing, always growing. And because Jesus was becoming so big on the inside of him, he couldn't help but live in a certain way. It wasn't a fence to him. It was a well. It was personal. Jesus met him, changed him, transformed him. Can you remember the, first, the time that you got saved? That amazing revelation of Jesus that set you free. Well, Paul lived in that place of just personal, oh God, thank you so much for what you've done through Jesus in my life. If you read the, the Gospels, uh, and, the, and the letters, Paul uses this word, gospel, 74 times. It's written in the New Testament 91 times. And when you read the book of Romans, it's, it's uh, implicit in the, the word gospel is the breaking in of something into an earthly kingdom. That's what gospel means. It's the good news. It's breaking in. And Paul was using it specifically in terms of the Roman Empire breaking into the culture of the day. I'm going to quote some theologians today. The first is a guy called David Bosch. For all the South Africans in the audience, he has a good South African theologian for you. David Bosch, all right? Can't get more South African than that, right? And we can look at Tim Keller, who's a good American. Any Americans here? No? Okay, unfortunate, because he's a good theologian as well. But David Bosch says this. He says this. He asks this question. I want to ask you this question this morning as well. Are we a gospel-centered mission? around which we are building community? Or are we a community of relationships, a community of relationships around which we are building gospel-centered mission? Okay, can I let it sink in for a while? Can I say it again? Are we a a God-centered mission around which we are building community? Or... Are we a community of relationships around which we are building a gospel-centered mission? Perhaps I can try and give you some things to help you make up your mind. I want to say this. When the gospel's at the center of all things, when the gospel's at the center, a whole lot of other stuff becomes flexible. When the gospel's at the center... Why? Because the gospel, if, if the most important thing is getting the good news to the people, a whole lot of other stuff becomes flexible. How we do church becomes flexible if the main thing is we want to get the message out. When you're more concerned about all the other stuff on the outside, the periphery, 
we lose the centrality of getting the good news out. When the gospel's at the center, these words are used often. Radical, fluid, organic, passionate when the gospel is at the center. David Bosch asks another question. Can I ask you as well? What, who needs the gospel more, the church or the world? Guido, you can smile because you heard this before. Eh? <laughs> who needs the gospel more, the church or the world? George Hurst, you pass go, you collect 200 quid. Well done. <laughs> it's both. Why do I say that? Well, if you see the gospel, if you see the gospel as an entry point, as you see the gospel as a, if you see it as an entry point into the Christian life, for example, and you think in terms of gospel, gospel equals being born again, gospel equals being baptized in the Holy Spirit, gospel equals uh, water baptism, gospel equals this, and there's a whole lot of little compartments, and we understand the gospel as these little things. I think we start to get into trouble because Paul speaks like this. Paul says, speaks of my, he speaks of the gospel, first of all. The gospel. In other words, the timeless, eternal truth of who God is. The gospel. Then Paul speaks of my gospel. You see, it's not just timeless, eternal truth for Paul. It's become his. It's personal. And then he speaks of our gospel. And so there's a collaboration around the eternal truth of God that has become personal to you. We collaborate around that and it becomes our gospel together. Alright? Paul also says we are saved by the gospel, into the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. All three. We are saved in, to, we are saved by the gospel, into the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. And the most famous, wonderful, delirious song. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the power of God for salvation of all who would believe. Quoting Romans. I want to suggest to you this morning, if the gospel is at the center of all that we do, a gospel-centered community is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. You don't have to motivate anyone who has the gospel at the center of their lives. I have not, to my knowledge, ever gone... On a, on a Friday morning and try to encourage those girls at the building blocks because you know why? It's in their hearts. I just go and I'm amazed that they do what they do from week to week. But it's in their hearts. It's, the gospel is beating inside of them. They want to get something out to those ladies and they just do it week after week because the gospel's in them. Ah, I'm excited about that. Hmm. Tim Keller. I want to recommend his stuff to you. If you've got access to the internet, go on and listen to some of his messages. Tim Keller, he's an American who is in New York and uh, he leads a church there. He says this, he says, um, the gospel sets the agenda for the apostolic. Apostolic is sending, yeah? The gospel sets the agenda for the apostolic. Paul writes to Timothy and he says twice to him, I was appointed a herald and a teacher of this gospel. A herald and a teacher. Remember, we're trying to answer the question, who needs the gospel more, the church or the world? Well, Paul says, I was a herald of the gospel and I'm also a teacher of the gospel. What do, what do apostles do? Apostles, they herald the message. They tell those that have not yet heard of the good news of Jesus, 
Paul said, I want to go to Spain. I want to go where no one's gone before. I want to go to Spain, the furthermost parts of the earth. For, for Paul, was Spain. For us, it's a two-hour easy jet flight to Mallorca. But for Paul, it was the uttermost parts of the earth. And he wanted to go there because he wanted to take the gospel where it hadn't gone before. He, that was the apostle, the apostle Paul. And he also says, though, he was a herald. That's the proclaimer of the good news. And I want to suggest that song needs to percolate inside of us. The song of the gospel of the good news of Christ percolate inside of us. But he said he's not only a, a herald, he's not only an apostle, he said he's also a teacher. And what do teachers do? They unpack truth to people who need to be taught. And so Paul says, I herald to those who have not yet heard. That's part of my mandate. The other part of my mandate is I teach the church because the church also needs the gospel. And he teaches the church. And he says, this is the curriculum of heaven. And I want to unpack the curriculum of heaven and I want to plant it into your lives like seed so it can bear fruit. That's the gospel. The gospel is always bearing fruit. Can you see now why Paul says, I have been saved, past tense, that a moment of justification when Christ came into our lives and washed away our sin. Always free. And then he says, we are being saved. Why are we being saved? Because the gospel is still active in your life. It is still personally transforming you to be more and more like Jesus. It's both and. So the teachers take the curriculum of heaven and they put it into our lives. Paul says, I'm both a herald and a teacher of this gospel. And Jesus is the central personality in all of God's story, from creation through the fall, redemption, and one day, the restoration of all things. Jesus is the central personality of all of that. Are you with me this morning, guys? And so what are we called to do? We're called to preach the good news, the gospel, to the cities. Why? Well, so that they might receive the message. It's a message of God's grace. And we're called to speak the gospel to the churches so that they might be equipped. That's what we're going to do. It's both end. Ephesians 4. So preach the good news to those that are lost. Teach it to the church. They can be equipped in all that they need to be equipped in. That's what we're called to do. So the first 11 chapters of Romans, if you've read the book of Romans, it's quite an amazing, amazing book of theology. Wonderful book. And you know, the first 11 chapters of Romans are there so that you and I can understand the absolute ravishing message of the grace of God. It is a ravishing message. It's an undeserved message of God's grace. And the first 11 chapters speak of that amazing, amazing thing that God has done. And Terry Virgo, and I'm quoting a nice, a good English theologian, right? See, it's all things to all people, see? Multicultural church, all that stuff. I'm trying my best to satisfy everyone. Terry Virgo, what does he say? He says this. He says, you must let the paint dry on the first 11 chapters of Romans before you get to Romans chapter 12. And what does Romans chapter 12 speak about? It says, therefore, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual, pleasing act of worship. What is he trying to say? He's trying to say, the first 11 chapters, which speak of this amazing thing that God has done for us in the blood of Jesus, how it satisfies his wrath and his anger, how we are justified, how we are washed clean by the blood. Let that settle in your life. Let that, let that paint dry in your own life. Before you start saying, offer up your body as a living sacrifice. You with me? Sometimes we can get to Romans chapter 12 
too quickly, because what does Paul say? He says, in the light of these mercies, what mercies? Chapter 1 to chapter 11. In the light of all those mercies of the grace of God in your life, offer up your body as a living sacrifice. Colossians 1.6 says this, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does amongst you. Yes, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing amongst us who have heard it. It's bearing fruit, it's powerful, it's active, it's violent, it's transformational, it's explosive, it has power. I must be speaking too loudly. I'll try and speak, I'll try and speak softly, right? Ah, don't let that message grow static in you. Don't let it die in you. It can't, it, we can't let it get static. It's got to percolate. The best kind of coffee is percolated coffee. It's just bubbled over and over and over and over and over and over. And all the good stuff gets out of the beans. Gospel needs to be the song that percolates in us. See, our Christology is centered around who? Jesus. Our revelation of Him. I want to encourage you, like I said, dig that well in your life, your personal revelation of Jesus. Centered around the person of Christ. That's what we want to preach in this church. Jesus. Christ crucified. Christ raised from the dead. We preach Christ. But the gospel is our mission, and the gospel is our message. And this is the gospel. That the devil is bad, and that God is good. That's the gospel. (laughs) This is the gospel. That Jesus came to make dead people live. That is the gospel. That in Him, all our sins, although as scarlet, are washed whiter than snow. That is the good news. As simple as that. Let that burn in your heart. Let that percolate in you. Let it be the motivation of your life. Let it become the song of your heart. And what does Paul say? First chapter of Romans, verse 1 to 6. I'm getting to my points. This is all introduction, but I'm getting there. Digging the well of the gospel. Romans 1. He says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, Ascending according to, the, according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about what? The obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations, including you, who are being called to belong to Jesus. Amen. That's the gospel. So when we preach the gospel, it forms the church. When we preach the gospel, the church grows. So how do you plant a church then? Uh, It's a funny story, just to to try and release the tension in the building. But uh, a friend of mine who's uh, leading a church, they had their books audited. And the auditor was happy with everything. And he just said, I'm just really concerned though because you seem to, you spend a lot of money, a huge portion of your money on church plants. How, How many plants can you have in your church? Meaning he thought they were filling filling the place with, with flowers every week, you know? So, yeah, you see, we all have our in speak, don't we? Church plants, what is church? Well, for you, that might mean something. To me, it means something else. So it's not the church plant foliage. It's not that. It's planting churches, all right? Language. 
When we preach the gospel, the church forms. How do we plant a church? Well, I, I want to suggest to you that we simply preach the gospel, and around the preaching of the gospel, the church will form. And we preach the gospel, the church will grow. Okay? Gospel-centered lives lead to a fruitful centered effectiveness, if I can put it like that. It's not leadership, then the gospel. It's not church planting, then the gospel. It's the gospel first, and then all those things flow out, the preaching of the gospel. You with me? Here are my 10 points. And I'm going to do them in five, 15 minutes. Here we go. Point number one. These are from Tim Keller's writing, and from uh, Mark Driscoll, and from uh, Rigby Wallace. 10 points about aligning ourselves to the gospel priority in building into our local churches. Okay? And my friends, this is a new era for this church. It is. I'm so glad to have journeyed with, for, with many of you for the last eight years, but it's a new era. And I want to just say to you that half of the church, more than half of the church is not even here yet. You see those chairs at the back there? They're not stacked there because we didn't have anything else to do. They are stacked there because those are going to be Seats for people who are not yet saved. That's why. And so it's a prophetic statement for me. Every time I look at those seats at the back that are now stacked, because I, in my heart, it burns a passion to say, God, those seats are going to be filled by people that do not yet know you. Gospel. Good news of Jesus. Why? Because we're trying to build a, a megalomaniac kind of church to rule the world? No, because no church is big enough. It can never be big enough. I had a, heard a man say to me, didn't want his, this, uh, a church to grow beyond 60. And I, I was amazed by that. I thought, how can you say that? What about the lost? <laughs> well, does that mean once the church is 60, you no more love the lost and care for the lost and you don't want them to be saved? What is that? I can't go with that. If this church grew to 10,000, it still wouldn't be big enough. Why? Because there's still 10,000 more to be saved. Gospel is what? It's Christological. These are fancy words, but all that means is Christ-centered. The gospel is Christological. The gospel has not been preached if Christ and His work has not been proclaimed. And I trust you would hear the preaching of the gospel in this church. What's the implication for us? Well, if you are teaching children in your home groups, when you're leading worship, what should be the center of every single song, every single children's story, every single illustration that you bring in your small group? Jesus. He's the center of everything. Let Him be the center. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience has been imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar things and go out into a world not knowing whether he, where he went to create a new people for God. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blows of justice that we deserve so we like Jacob only receive the wounds of grace. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him, and he uses his new power to save them. 
Jesus is the true and better Moses that stood in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant for us. There's loads that I could say. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to help him accomplish it. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the rock, the real rock of Moses. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death would pass over us. He's the true temple. He's the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true king. He's the true sacrifice. He's the true lamb. He's the true light. He's the true bread. We could go on and on and on. Christological, the gospel. Secondly, it's theological. What does that mean? Well, quite simply, it's about him. It's about God. (laughs) The gospel is about God. It's about his purposes. It's about his plan. Aren't you so glad that God so loved the world that he sent his son? It's all about him. He satisfies his own wrath through the sacrifice of his own son. It's theological, the gospel. Thirdly, it's biblical. I'm going to do these in 10 minutes. It's biblical. Uh, These are all, these 10 things, uh, if you want a biblical reference, they're all taken out of 1 Corinthians 15. If you'd like to read the whole chapter, you can find these 10 things in 1 Corinthians 15. Thirdly, it is biblical. In verse 3 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, it says that he was died, he was raised according to the Scripture. According to the scripture, the gospel is biblical. Fourthly, it's apostolic. It's apostolic. It means it's a thing that's got movement. It's not a static thing. The gospel draws attention to those who proclaim it as well. And what does uh, Paul do? He actually rebukes those who rely on themselves around different apostle, apostles and say, Oh, I'm of, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, whoever. And, Paul, and what does Paul say? He says, No, 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 no. Surely the central thing is Jesus. Let's not al- align ourselves around personalities. As good as personalities are, that's not the main thing. The main thing is Jesus. We align ourselves around Him. And that's what Ephesians 4 gifts are there to do to equip us, encourage us, and align us around the central personality of the gospel, Jesus Christ. Five, the gospel is grace-empowered. Grace-empowered. We are saved, we are equipped, we are commissioned by grace for the gospel. It's a grace to give generously. It's a grace to serve in the church. Paul says, because of the grace of God, I worked harder than all of you. And then people say, you're working hard, you're under the law, you're not under grace. No, 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 no. There's a revelation of grace that enables me to do all things. Because Christ loved me. And I want to love Him. I'm not earning my salvation, I'm just saying, God, I'm so grateful. Here's my life. All my time is yours. Take it. Revelation of grace. At least you're smiling, Martin. I'll look at you, but It's grace-empowered. Sixthly, it's historical. It's historical. If you read read verse 3 to 9, I'll just read it for you in chapter 15. It says, I delivered to you as of first importance that I received 
Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than the 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me, Paul says. Yeah, there's a timeline in history, my friends. The gospel didn't happen in obscurity. It didn't happen like that. There's a timeline. It's, it's, it's documented. It's historical. It's rooted in history. Point number seven. I'm rushing now, but I need to conclude. Point number seven. The gospel is personal. It's personal. Remember we talked about a Christology? It needs to be a personal Christology. Verse two of chapter 15 says, You were saved. You were saved. I love this. Someone, I don't know who said this, but someone said this, that God has no grandchildren, only children. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has sons and daughters. You have to be saved by the blood of Jesus, yourself. Personal. It's a theological framework in your life that is personal. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 says this, and, and, and listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, I thank Him, I'm going to emphasize all the R's, alright? I thank Him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying and, full of full, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But I received mercy for this reason that is in me as the foremost. Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, the gospel doesn't just come and mildly transform your personality and improve, improve you slightly. It offers hope to the worst of sinners. And that's what Paul says. He says, this gospel is my gospel because I was the worst of sinners and it's impacted me personally. And you know what's under attack right now in the world? It's these simple things. Imputation, imputed righteousness, and an historic understanding of who Jesus is. That's what's being de debated in the world right now. And J.R. Packer, a wonderful theologian, he says this, to understand grace, to understand grace, you have to understand two things. How great your debt is, one. And secondly, the magnitude of God's provision for you. When you understand how big your debt is and the magnitude of God's provision of grace for you, you truly understand, start to understand the grace of God. Eight. It's universal. The gospel is universal. It, death came into the world through the first Adam, and life comes into the world through the last Adam, Jesus. He makes all who believe, once we're dead, He makes them alive. And we know that the gospel needs to be preached to all of mankind before the end can come. It is universal. The gospel is universal. Nine, it's eschatological. 
This is a fancy theological word. It just means to do with the end. End times. You read in verse 23 of chapter 15 that the gospel wraps up all of human history. In the, uh, you can read that in those verses. And like I said before, the, Jesus will come and wrap up all of human history and the consummation of the bride and the glorifying of those that have been saved by the gospel at the end of all time. Lastly, it's supernatural. The gospel is supernatural. Acts 4, 33. Go and read it for yourselves. We are encouraged to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. Can I put it this way? Signs and wonders are the dinner bell. ding a ling a ling 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 They're not the main meal. They're calling you to the feast. It's not the main thing. Signs and wonders are the dinner bell. The main feast is personal transforming power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love signs and wonders. I want to see more signs and wonders. We prayed for people in Denmark with sore knees. We want to see people healed of every affliction. We prayed for people this morning who are sick. We want to see people saved and healed and delivered. I love that. But it's not the main thing. You know what the main thing is? Jesus. The source of the healing. The gospel is the president. It's the foundation of the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. It's a simple, powerful message that changes not only our lives, but our eternal destiny as well. Last question for you, and I'm closing with this. Are people, it's just for you to think about, are people bored with the gospel because we have not allowed them to be ravished by a passionate revelation of its truth so that they start to seek after other things like the miraculous and the excitement that that brings without first having the foundation of the good news of Jesus? Can I encourage you guys, my friends, it's a new season for us. It's a whole new era for this church. Can it be an era where we respond to the gospel in a whole fresh new way? Where we put the gospel at the center of our lives. We put the gospel, the good news of Jesus, at the center of all we do. Not anything else. Other things are good. Church planting is good. Leadership is good. Calling to business is good. They're all good. But the song in your heart and in my heart, that needs to sing above all the others is the song of the good news of Jesus. That's all we've got to sing. We don't have anything else to sing. That's what we're going to be singing when we're with Him in heaven. The song of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Amen? I really trust you encouraged. I've tried to do my best this morning to encourage you. I really trust that you'll be bold in the marketplace. You'll be bold in the workplace. You'll be bold with your friends and your family that we would see many saved as we preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus.